The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Wednesday, November the 6th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on in the show today, we'll be hearing from Suzanne Lynch about the current state of the race to become the Democratic candidate in next year's presidential election. But first, I am joined by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly. Uh, Fia, I'm glad to be back in the seat here. You did a good job last week. I was listening to your podcast. What the hell happened? Why was there a wobble last week? Uh, I was really surprised that anybody would have contemplated uh, running to the country for a general election in November? What happened was there was a, this is kind of pent up, I suppose, desire in Fine Gael for an election. And there are certain individuals in the party, from the top of the party to the bottom of the party, that any window arises, they are lobbying for an election. So any chance they see to, to get out to the country early, they would like to do because they say, look, this is the one advantage we have left. We can call this election, so the Taoiseach to call it. So, can you name names? Uh, I wouldn't get into naming names um, because they're always on the phone to us lobbying, and you know we have to respect the privacy of our exchanges with people in in, in politics. But what happened was, I think there was an in- initial expectation that okay, if the Brexit withdrawal agreement gets through the House of Commons in a, a manner that would allow the UK to leave on thirty first of October, then the, the question was unanswerable. There was a logic to calling an election. Brexit was done. Um, the confidence supply agreement therefore no longer applied. You could get the finance bill and the social welfare. You actually don't have to get the finance bill and the social welfare bill through. That's a bit of a canard. They can take a couple of months to get through the legislative process. You can dissolve the doll, go off, have your election, come back and pick it up again. What really matters with the budgetary process is the budget day resolutions. So the, the issues that go through the House on the day of the budget day are what matters. All done. All yeah. done. So that was a, a neat, in a bow, off you go type scenario. But that didn't happen, as we know. So then when uh, Boris Johnson finally got his way and got an election, there were people arguing in Fine Gael that this is our window, we have an opportunity now, there is a break for three months, an extension has been granted until the end of January in the Brexit process for us to get our house in order. You could see the arguments for it. People were saying, we have a break now, There is a, not only is there a, a UK election, there is an incoming European Commission now, it's the time for a reset that we can look after our own alternative position and then look back to Europe later in the year. That was an argument amongst many and the Taoiseach himself when addressing his Fine Gael ministers on this last week said 80% of people who had contacted him were in favour of an election. That's 80% of people in the parliamentary party and speaking to people in the PP myself, I think they would broadly agree with that. You're talking about three quarters of the PP were in favour of going early. But the one person who makes a decision wasn't. And I think what happened is, again, I've said this on this podcast before a few times, people underestimate his natural caution. And I think that is what kicked in again. And people, senior people around him would also be cautious. And the view was you couldn't go to the country until Brexit is res- it resolved. Left, would it, not have le- it would have left him very vulnerable to an attack yeah, I think that, it would. that he was putting his own political interests ahead of something which wasn't resolved. Because you could easily see a situation where you have a hung parliament, say in yep. Westminster in January, where there's another crisis kicks in and you don't have a you don't have a settled government in, in Dublin. That is the, the, the argument. And how... like. Let's say, for example, 
that we were in the middle of an election campaign now. And the UK election campaign, as it has in the last few days, has turned to this debate whether there should be a deal between Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. And Farage's demand is that Johnson scraps the withdrawal agreement in its entirety and goes for a clean break Brexit. Consequently, it seems that Farage is rising in some polls. And you had the Taoiseach trying to explain why he was having an election now with all this uncertainty when, as you say, the result of the UK one could be a hung parliament which Boris Johnson was relying on Nigel Farage. Like that, these things I don't think were thought through by many people who were in, f- in favour of an election. And secondly, how do you explain that? Like, as you say, what's the... Ex- like, people go, oh, it lasts a day, last day or last two days. Okay, but, like, you're better off getting off to a good start to a campaign than a bad start to a campaign. And it wouldn't last because you'd have this parallel election going on in yes. the UK as well. So yes. you'd have this really heightened media... Exactly. And the Taoiseach himself has always criticised Micheál Martin, privately and publicly, for, as he characterises it, linking this, the duration of this, the lifetime of this doll and this government to the House of Commons. So in effect, having an election, because the UK was having an election, kind of makes, you know, reinforce that supplicant status that, you know, we'll have to wait what they do to see what they do before we do it. So mm. I think it looks like he made the right call. Um, you know, people in Fine Gael are a bit antsy because they're open the polls. You know, they had Fianna Fáil at a weak spot because of the voting issue. Um, you know, in Fianna Fáil now, at their front bench yesterday, you know, people were there saying, OK, Michal Martin was back on form for a few weeks, you know, exhorting his uh, TDs to get out and canvass in the four by-elections that are being held at the end of the month. And he did have a bit more vim about him in the chamber yesterday on the issue of the Q- QIH, Quinn issue in pressing the and the failure of the state to act. So I think, you know, he seems to have come through the last two weeks and is now looking to to rebuild towards that, what looks like an April-May election And presumably he's much happier with with an election in the spring. Or oh, yeah, like, you know, uh, even people on the left were saying <laughs> if they were the Taoiseach, the squeals of Fianna Fáil would have made them run to the country. You know, they were raising this issue of the finance bill, the social effort, and the need to adequately debate the supplementary estimates. It was quite obvious that Fianna Fáil didn't want an election. But again, as well as that, there were, there was a question over Fine Gael's readiness. There are a couple of constituencies outstanding where they have to fix tickets and they haven't done it yet. And without getting into the nitty gritty of the four by-election contests, which we now know are going to happen on, on November the 29th, how important do you think they are as a kind of a, a scene setter or a dress rehearsal for what's to come this spring? I think you can overestimate them. Um, you know, it is possible, it's likely that Fine Gael will only lose or win one or may only win one. Um, they have their hopes pinned on Dublin Midwest. The Ritz will be moved sometime in the next few days. Taoiseach's first doorstep of the by-election campaigning will be on Dublin Midwest, so I think that tells you everything you need to know But where their priorities lie. But, but does it mean if they win one and four that they're not going to be in contention to lead the next government? I don't think so. By-elections are kind of curios to themselves. I think what will be interesting to see is the pattern of transfer. So let's say, example... Dublin Fingal, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil's around Clifford Lee is seen to be the, the person in, in the lead. But what happens with the Green candidates? Do they mop up transfers from everywhere? Do, where does the Labour transfers go if they go out ahead of the Greens and vice versa? I think what it may be interesting to see is the pattern of voting ahead of the election. So where is Fianna Gael totally transfer toxic? Does the Fianna Fáil candidate pick up votes from, you know, that opposition alliance of the Shinners, the Labour Party, the Green Party, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic and the overall first preference vote of the various parties. Now, I was looking at Twitter yesterday, as I do, and I saw a tweet from People Before Profit saying, uh, what, what do uh, Leo Varadkar and Kim Jong-un have in common? 
uh, and uh, apparently they both hate democracy. Um, and this refers to money messages, something yes, I wasn't, I did, uh, wasn't uh, aware of before, uh, but a row broke up with the doll yesterday about it. I did, for some reason, try to explain this to a relative of mine over the weekend when he asked about, what's this Vokey thing all about? And I was explaining why votes don't matter and, you know, money messages. And he just looked at me and goes, I have no idea what you just said. So bear with me for a few minutes. Basically, in the Constitution, the Constitution stipulates De Valera's constitution outlines more or less that anybody who wants to spend money that is the function of the executive to spend money on behalf of the state. Therefore, if a bill, a private member's bill, is passed through the doll and is imposed on the government, if it involves a charge on the exchequer, it can be blocked by a money message. So you may hear about the will of the doll. The doll has said we must do the following. If the doll decides tomorrow and is voted through that it wants to spend, I don't know, a couple of hundred million on infrastructure projects, the government can block it mm-hmm. through a money message, which is a mechanism it can use to say, that involves a charge in the exchequer, therefore we are not going ahead with it. But what has happened in this doll, because they're in an extreme minority position, they get beaten on votes repeatedly, so you'll often hear stuff going through, you know, opening legislative sl- stages. We've talked about this before. It goes to the committee stage, nothing happens, blah, it falls. But what they do as well is they block things they don't like with money messages. So they may not oppose a bill. For example, uh, the one on legalising the use of cannabis for medicinal purpose, they may not oppose it at a vote phase, but then they can take the money message out and block it technically. And one of the things I don't quite understand is they have similar legislation in the United Kingdom because I know it came up when there was a question about whether uh, the parliament, which has just been dissolved, um, might, uh, might vote in favour of a referendum. And that that could be yes. blocked by the uh, by Boris Johnson's government because it would involve a charge in the exchequer. But Boris Johnson's government wasn't able to block, for example, the the Ben Bill, mm. uh, which presumably cost something to put the put the stamp on the letter to send to uh, to send to Brussels. Mm. And it sounds like in this case in Ireland, what they're doing is everything presumably co- comes with a cost of some sort. You know, you've yeah. got to print something or you've got to make a phone call or you've got to get somebody to do two days' work for it. Uh, but something like the, the legalisation of medicinal yeah, cannabis, you like which you mentioned, there isn't, it's not 200 there's, million, there's, it's not a major piece of capital expenditure, see, it's nothing see, of that sort. It seems that there's a high level of, dis- of discretion to it that um, the government can more or less say what it does, it does or doesn't like. Um, like there have been instances where the government takes on legislation that it likes and, mm. you know, crafts it into its own. And turns it around and says, you know, this is our idea. So it seems to be if they don't like it, they will use this mechanism to So block is it. there is there a really serious constitutional issue here? Because given that we have this minority government operating under confidence and supply now, it seems very likely mm. that we'll have we might have something similar, albeit with a you know, with a different lineup the next the next time out. Um and Parliament is essentially neutered. You know, it passes pieces of legislation and those, those that legislation is never enacted. Is that not a constitutional crisis? I think crisis might be too strong a word. I think it's a it's it's a, it's a lacuna in the constitution um, that prevents this happening. I wouldn't say it's a crisis because the alternative is your people before profit. Why don't you get into the executive and former government with people you you may not, you know, if you do not think that you're not going to government with two of the main parties, which they don't want to do, and you want to go on the long march towards a majority for the left, that's going to take some time, but. This is the situation in which, in which you're dealing with. Like, it was put there for a reason. As far as I know, although I'm open to correction, someone must go back and check. I think on a vote, the Fianna Fáil and the Labour Party sided with the government. Um, because well, they, that would, well, that would be different they, because that would then be a majority in Parliament. I mean, the reason why it's potentially a constitutional crisis is because Parliament is, the doll is sovereign hmm. and if it passes legislation... To appoint Lord Copper, according to De Valera's constitution. So therefore, what is happening is within the realms of the constitution and 
is a difficulty within that constitution, but perhaps not a crisis. Is it a difficulty that you think might need addressing if we've got this form of, uh, the phrase has gone out of favour at this stage, but new politics? I can't see this one being addressed because if you're a Fianna Fáil or a Labour Party or the Green Party and you're looking at a situation where, as you say, you could be in a minority government, <laughs> you want the same restraining bolt to, in your uh, side pocket as the government has now, so I cannot see this changing. It is a feature of new politics. It is a feature of this doll, much like the, I suppose, demeaning of the importance of doll votes is a feature of this doll, and it's just... One of those things. Now, another thing which came up while I was away last week and I thought we should just touch on it is uh, the length of time it takes to uh, get from Leinster House to Sneem. Um, uh, yes. People were frantically taking out their pocket calculators and yeah. reckoning their kilometres per hour. This is the uh, Fobgate, it's a tributary of Votegate. Uh, so Fobgate refers to the fact that Michael Healy Ray, the story was in the Irish Independent, Michael Healy Ray, the day young Claude Juncker addressed the House of the Oireachtas uh, some time ago, I think it was a year, a year or so ago, as chair of the European Affairs Committee was not in the chamber, this had been previously the subject of some adverse publicity for Michael Healy Ray because John Brazelis, constituency TD, went on to Kerry Radio and helpfully pointed out that he wasn't taking his job seriously as head of the European Affairs Committee. Subsequently transported, he was logged in on campus on the day of that speech. Um, now, for people who don't know, there is an allowance called the Travel Allowance uh, for TDs. It's one of the expenses, the planks of the expenses system in, in Leicester House, travel and accommodation allowance, excuse me. And it is dependent on TDs being present in Leicester House for 120 days. They have to attend a certain amount of days to fully claim this allowance. This system was introduced in Brian Lenehan, by Brian Lenehan in 2010, in the midst of the recession, furore about expenses back then. The problem or the difficulty with the system is that it doesn't record the time a TD or senator logs in. It only records the date. There are 25 points around the Leinster House campus and I mean the campus, I mean the historical house. There are buildings connected where a rock to staff are in. For example, the building I work out of is on South Frederick Street, a shared corridor, a rock to staff. They have a fob in point down the end. Their timestamp is recorded. So if they log in at half 10 this morning, it will say they logged in at half ten. So just be so. This doesn't just apply to elected representatives. It applies to well, the staff of the Oireachtas. The staff of the Oireachtas have to log in themselves as well. Why? I'm not going to clear on that one, but I was told this in my in my <laughs> in my ask about this in recent days that they they have a login system too. But for TDs, their time is not recorded. So it just says Michael Healy Ray was there, say on November 6, twenty nineteen. Doesn't say what time he logged in at. So theoretically, it is open to somebody if they want to to arrive up in their constituency on a Wednesday evening at six o'clock, park their car in the car park, go in, beep in. It's like a little, it's like a literal electronic fob. You go up and you beep it in off a wall. Go in, have your dinner. Um, you know, maybe you might have a point. If you leave the, the, the vicinity of the rocks at 10 past 12, fob in on your way out and then get up in the morning and drive home. You are then logged in for two days for the purpose of And this, I presume, is separate from, like, you and I have fobs to get around the Irish Times office. Lots of people will be familiar with this to get through doors. Yes. And all that kind of stuff. This is separate from this that, is separate. Is so I okay. have a card that I use to security myself, security sure. swipe myself into Lance House, but that is separate to the fob-in system. That is that is for the, 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 the issue of expenses for TDs. I think the difficulty the Iraq to say with it is that the sta- statutory instrument from Brian Lennon laying this down in 2010 did not require them to actually timestamp the time people log in. So Michael Healy Ray is saying, I was there that day. I logged in very early in the morning. 
I immediately drove down to this funeral. I wasn't there for the funeral service itself. I was there for the afters. I don't know if that's the burial or, you know, people are congregating in the graveyard. It's a four and, and a half to five hour yeah, drive. Yeah, anyway, four and a half to five hour drive. Mm. It is credible that that happened. It may be stretching the bounds of credulity, but the office suite he is in is Agriculture House uh, next door to Lancaster House. It links to Lancaster House by a tunnel. That is a 24-7 access so you can get in there 24-7 and log in 24-7. You do see the Healy Rays around Let's House very early in the morning sometimes. Leo Varadkar would be very fond of them. So it is credible that he logged in very early, immediately got into his car, drove to Kerry, and in doing so, he did not break any rules. But the question is about the system, then, if it allows him to do so. Okay, there's a couple of questions I want to go. First of all, there was some suggestion that some people, and it certainly wasn't suggested about any individual, uh, Michael Healy Ray or any other one, that perhaps you could give your fob to somebody else and other people might be, you know, your staff might be fobbing you in or not. There's been no evidence that... There's been that, no evidence that, that. that, that that's happening. But that, uh, that is like, okay. you know, this kind of um, bit of chat that goes around the place, you know, there was rumour that there was one fob point. That well, it would be easily done, wouldn't it? Co- of course it could be easily done. Like, it's literally like me handing you a keychain, uh, key ringing, and you going up to the wall for me and beeping like the thing that would stop it if there's CCTV you can all sorts of issues with GDPR there except if you want to get access to CCTV yes absolutely someone could okay. and take that, a hearing and that, and, that, that, and that would be a form of fraud but that, on the other hand just accepting yeah. for, for, for the sake of the argument here that, that that hasn't happened if somebody is doing it and this system is in place to actually reflect people's attendance in the doll and they're not actually attended the doll at all mm. uh, and a, a, an important day such as the, the mm. Junker visit um, that's not fraud, but it certainly brings the system, at yes. the very least, into disrepute, doesn't it? Yes, the system is, is I think, you know, ha- is under scrutiny now because the fact that you can, you know, you don't have to indicate that you've spent any time in Leinster House. You just have to have been present on like a minute or two of the day. You could walk in, fob off and go off. Then again, if you're talking about the system, it's up to the Minister for Finance to reform that because he would have to stipulate you would have to get into stuff like stipulating you have to spend X hours a day in the campus you'd have to have clock in clock yeah out. so like the other thing is oftentimes let's say the IFA will come up to Dublin too and they will have a briefing for TDs in a hotel in the vicinity of Leinster so you're talking Buzzwells the Davenport the Montclair the Alexander those type of hotels and they have a big table where you know TDs come down they sit and they go and they chat to representatives from their constituencies oftentimes that can take a couple of hours so then you'd have to get into stipulating, okay, if they leave the campus for that, does that mean they've left the campus the same as they left the constituencies? So I think, just talking to people in the last few days, I think it's very difficult to see how the Oireachtas, it's to see the Oireachtas having the desire to want that change, that people will have to time stamp in. Because then you're stipulating, you have to be in Leinster House for a certain period of the day to claim yeah. those expenses. Okay, I can accept the practicalities of that, but I am also sure that there'll be people listening to this who'll say, because this always then brings up the, the broader issue of what's expected of our political representatives and whether they, they meet those expectations. And there are people who commute in from the commuter counties around Dublin and they're expected to just to show up for work and they don't get anything extra for it. Whereas if you live in Kildare or Meath or Wicklow or God knows even the more remote parts of Dublin County, you actually get paid money because you're because there's a travel cost involved mm. there. And people look at that and they look at various other allowances and tax benefits yeah, yeah. and things like that and they say these guys are feathering their nests and it brings politics into disrepute. Absolutely. The, the, the idea that someone from the Dublin commuter belt gets an allowance for travelling into work is, you know, I find it hard to believe. I'm sure, sure many other people do. Yeah. The fact that if you're in a certain distance, you can get like a nice earner of a couple of grand a year on top of your base salary 
as an expense to travelling in. Everybody else has to fund their work, their travel to work from their own pocket, their dart, their, their you know, bus trip, their petrol for their car, their diesel for their car, whatever it is. I think there are elements of the system that are completely indefensible, and that being one, that if you're a Dublin TD, you get <laughs> a few extra bob for coming to work every day. I think that is that is open to question. And the issue of the allowance for rural TDs, it's based on the band. So you get, you know, the allowance is more if you're coming from West Cork, Kerry, Donegal, the further reaches. And what that is designed to do as well is, you know, you would hear TDs say this. Um, I'm not sure it's going to meet with the sympathy of, of, of many people, but they do have something of a point. They say, if we're from rural Ireland, we have to pay for hotel rooms in Dublin. They're not the most cheap as we know, at the moment, they say when this allowance was introduced in 2010, it was a different situation where hotel rooms were obviously not as pricey as they are now. It's now a situation where we have to pay a large amount of money for two or three nights to stay up here I, in Dublin. I, a reasonable argument could be made for that for a TD from Dublin. Yes, or from but the, the idea of the, 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 the commuter belt, uh, TDs getting a couple of grand for their commute to work every day, many, no. of, many of whom you see them get the dart in. You see them coming up from Pierce Station, you know, recklessly. So it's not like they're coming in on limos uh, that they can throw in, throw in the Leinster Lawn car park. Like, they're doing what the rest of us do, which is commuting to work. They just get paid money for it. Finally, Fiek, is it going to be kind of quiet times now? Now that I mean, apart from the by-elections, obviously, until till we get into the new year? Yeah, I think that there's, there's a real sense of, um, I kind of around Lens House this week that there's like what, there's nothing to do <laughs> you know people are going to look at each other going what are we going to do for five or six months I'm not talking about like TDs journalists everybody is, is saying that because the I suppose the election you know has is not happening now um, but we're clearly on the wind down of this government so not much by way of new legislation is going through the cabinet or the houses it's just seems to be boxing off a lot of stuff that needs to be done before the election so the finance bill is at committee stage this week um, some legislation that people want to get through before election is, is progressing. But are, are we going to see anything, any major policy moves over the next while? No, it's probably going to tread water for a couple of months. And that is a danger for the government. Like we saw yesterday, trolley figures at a record level already, and it's November. So, you know, something will fill the vacuum, whether it is a homelessness issue, the issue of immigration, the issue of uh, uh, services in the health system is is going to fill this but I think there's also a broad acceptance now that we're not going to be having an election until April because someone kind of put it to me yesterday in an interesting way that like whatever about the political tactics of calling it and having it early um, that there is a fear say for example if you're Micheál Martin you want to maintain the Paddy's Day November 17th, Jamboree in Washington. Not for the fact that, like, you know, the public will care about it, but it's seen as something in the national interest Mm -hmm. that if you were to have an election campaign in the middle of that and there was a reason for the White House to not have the annual Paddy's Day trip that it could fall away and never return. So for that reason, people believe that it may be the far side of that. Thanks for that, Fiac. And speaking of the White House, we'll be joined by Suzanne Lynch after the break. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. 
Now, the Democratic Party in the United States had a good night last night, uh, winning control of the legislature in Virginia for the first time in a generation and also taking the governorship of Kentucky from the Republicans. But it is not all sweetness and light. Um, Before the results came in, I was joined by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, to discuss the state of the party with only three months to go to the beginning of the primary process in Iowa and also only 12 months to go to the presidential election itself. Suzanne, if I was in the Democratic Party, I think I'd be very nervous about a New York Times poll which appeared this week, which was showing that the leading Democrats are only neck and neck or indeed are behind Donald Trump in the key battleground states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Because we do know how Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016 panned out that it didn't matter if she won the popular vote, that you have to win a majority of those swing states to win the presidency. Exactly. This poll is very worrying for Democrats. And I think it's a bit of a wake up call. Um, They're right in the throes now of this presidential contest, primary contest, who's going to be the person who's best placed to take on Donald Trump. And as you say there, this is kind of sobering reading because it's saying that although although Donald Trump is uh, down in the 40s when it comes to popularity nationally, he still has a competitive edge in these key swing states in the United States. And it's important to keep that in mind. So in other words, it doesn't matter how well a Democratic candidate gets on, for example, in New York, they're going to win, turn Democrat anyway. What happens are these clutch of swing states uh, that Donald Trump did successfully win, and just by a narrow margin, but he did win them in 2016. This new research from the New York Times suggests that he's in a very, very good position to win them again uh, in 2020. Now, uh, it's been a positive development for Joe Biden, because what this poll is saying is that Joe Biden at this point seems to be the only candidate who could beat Donald Trump in some of these swing states, according to this research. And just last night, for example, on the back of this poll, Joe Biden's campaign put out a a fundraising text to supporters saying, look, this poll shows he's the man to beat uh, Donald Trump. We need to start increasing uh, our fundraising. It's not been doing very well. So it's good news for Biden, who's been struggling. uh, But it really gets at the heart of Democrats' problem uh, as it faces into next year. Who's the best candidate to beat Trump? Should they uh, go with the more left-wing side of the party, candidates like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, who do energise supporters? Or is it better to go for a more centrist candidate, a known quantity like Joe Biden, who may not reflect the reality of many Democratic voters, may be an old white man, but he still may be the best person positioned to to beat Donald Trump in these swing states. Because the argument that is made about the Democratic successes in the midterm elections last year was that the Democrats successfully targeted purple constituencies, successfully targeted middle class suburban voters, particularly women, and convinced them to move over from the Republicans to to the Democrats. Mm. And that is really is, is also Joe Biden's position. And that also sort of reflects what we're talking about in these states as well, doesn't it? So yeah, it's, it doesn't were, matter if you get... In, these, in this polling report, which suggests that some voters said they would not necessarily vote the way they did in 2018. That was, as you say, a big success for Democrats. They managed to make inroads into Republican areas. But according to this research, some uh, voters are saying, no, they would still vote for Trump, even if they voted for a Democrat, which is it's always a very different kind of race. It's on local issues, perhaps. Uh, and uh, they are, are suggesting that, no, they may vote uh, for Trump. So then it becomes a question of who's the best candidate. Um, Now, look, we're a year out. A lot could happen here. Some candidate could get the momentum. Joe Biden could falter. Who knows? Uh, But definitely the Trump campaign seemed to have their eye on Joe Biden uh, the most. Uh, This is part of the reason 
I think it's widely believed that they have really caught on to this issue of Biden and his son, uh, his son's dealing in Ukraine, which has, of course, launched the impeachment inquiries. They're trying to damage Biden and his candidacy. Uh, but yes, it's a boost for Biden, as I say. Uh, and people like Warren now are really going to have to look at how they're going to win over these kind of white working class voters, because the reality is that in a lot of these swing states, um, the white working class voter uh, is represents about half of registered voters in these states, in these battleground states. So I've heard candidates like Cory Booker, he's an African-American candidate. He makes the point, well, hang on, we also need to mobilize African-American voters. He points out that cities like Detroit, which is obviously in Michigan, a swing state, a lot of uh, voters there from the African-American communities didn't vote for Clinton. And the participation rate went down there significantly compared to the Obama election. So he said, well, why don't we engage those voters? And there is an argument there. But ultimately, in these swing states, the white working class voter who went for Donald Trump and was maybe traditionally Democrat has got an outsized influence. Suzanne, when we talk about electability and we talk about some candidates being further to the left and some candidates like Biden and probably Pete Buttigieg as well, who's the, the fourth one in the in the breakaway gang, the top four, who seem to be well ahead of anybody else in the democratic field at the moment. Um, what are we talking about? It seems again and again the debates centre on one issue, which is healthcare, which almost becomes a proxy for everything else. Yeah, healthcare is a huge issue. It was in 2018 and Nancy Pelosi very cleverly um instigated this uh, strategy of focusing on bread and butter issues, uh, particularly healthcare. And this paid off uh, in 2018 because we must remember Donald Trump came to power promising to repeal and replace Obamacare and the Republicans failed miserably. Uh, in the Senate, John McCain, uh, in a memorable moment, voted down um, the Republican proposal. Uh, so healthcare is a vulnerability for Republicans generally. But what's happened is that it emerges a main issue in the early stages of the Democratic campaign. And basically, there are two camps. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, uh, they support the idea of Medicare for all. That's a government-funded healthcare system. Uh, and then on the other side, you have candidates like Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg say no. I think Pete Buttigieg's uh, phrase was Medicare for all who want it, that they will not abolish private health insurance. And this is this is the issue for Democrats. Ideologically, a lot, most Democratic voters think that the American healthcare system is broken, even with the strides that were made with Obamacare. They think maybe theoretically that a, a, a national federal system of healthcare is a good idea. But when you actually ask people about losing their own health insurance, they're less comfortable with that. The reality is that most Americans here get their health insurance from their employers and it's a good system. This is the, this is the tragedy, if you like, of American healthcare. If you can pay for it, if you've got a good job, your healthcare is very, very good. It's just the problem is most half the country don't have that. So um, actually convincing voters to part ways with their private health insurance is a big, is a difficult task. And it certainly would not appeal to a lot of Republican potentially swing voters. So I think it's going to be a big issue in the debate. And Warren in particular is going to come under pressure for this position. Now, she did in the last few days unveil a plan. Uh, she is obviously the candidate who keeps saying she has a plan for everything. Under pressure from her opponents, she eventually did come uh, come forward with a spending plan, how she's going to fund this. It's pretty ambitious. Uh, it's a $20 trillion plan. Uh, she's got a combination of ways that she says she's going to fund this, both by reducing the costs of healthcare and by, for example, uh, obliging employers who currently uh, spend money on their own employees' healthcare to pay that to the federal government. So she's got all these kind of ideas now how she's going to fund this. Um, but 
Republicans immediately call this fairy tale economics, and I think she will continue to come under pressure on that as as the months. And I wonder for the uh, Democratic National Committee, the the people who run the party, they can't be that comfortable with the debate coming back again and again to to healthcare because Medicare for all is not a popular policy. It may be popular, as you say, among a substantial Mm. cohort of the Democratic Party, but not with the entire electorate. Yeah. And I mean, this is the danger of the of the whole primary process. Democrats are getting up every month now having these very, you know, these publicized TV debates. And again and again, healthcare is coming up at the issue, up as the issue. And Republicans are thrilled to see this because, as, as I say, they are quite weak on, on healthcare themselves. But they're kind of sitting back and watching the Democratic Party fight internally over the healthcare issue. Um, and really, you know, they're edging towards, they would like to have a candidate by Elizabeth, like Elizabeth Warren because, you know, they would lambast her on that issue if she is nominated. Um, so I think that could be an issue uh, going down the line. Uh, in saying that, in Iowa, the first Democratic state, the first state to vote in the Democratic primary, which has an outsized role on the whole election, um, a lot of the voters there seem to support Medicare for all. So that could benefit her in the early stages of this campaign. But then when they get to the national stage and when you're looking at the Elizabeth Warren versus Trump scenario, I think it could be a real problem for her. Yeah, and I want to come to the way that the the primaries are likely to play out. We're just three months away from the from the first primary in in Iowa now. But first, I want to ask you about. I mean, you've talked about the white working class, but an incredibly important constituency, and you mentioned Cory Booker in the Democratic Party is uh, is black voters. In a way, they are the base of the Republican Party. They can be of a big burden of the Democratic Party. They could be guaranteed to turn out. And there is a there is a racial undercurrent, it seems to me, in this contest. Joe Biden seems to have a lock on the black vote at the moment. Kamala Harris hasn't really taken off, nor is Cory Booker. Um, the other candidates, leading candidates in the field, don't seem to appeal to black voters, do they? Yeah, that, that's very true. And the first thing to say is that the four frontrunners at the moment, Biden, Warren, Sanders and Buttigieg, are, of course, all white. And a lot of people are disappointed that, you know, it does not reflect the diversity and the increasing diversity of the Democratic voter when demographics are changing so much here in this country. And and particularly the Hispanic uh, population is increasing so much, most of whom, not all, but most of whom vote Democrat. So, yes, that is an issue. And as you say there, uh, particularly Warren and Sanders and Buttigieg, they have a huge issue with the African-American vote. Uh, Warren polls best among educated white voters and women. Uh, and Sanders had this problem in, in 2016 against Clinton. He never really um, tuned in to the African-American vote, vote, never really built his base there. Now, they are, you know, the advantage for them is that, of course, Iowa and New Hampshire, which are the two states to vote first, are predominantly white, 90 percent white. Of course, they don't reflect the reality of American demographics. And of course, there's a broader argument to be made about why are these states still, why do they hold such an important position in this race when they don't really reflect uh, real America in uh, 2020 as it will be. Um, But yes, uh, they've got a big issue there. That's Joe Biden's big Trump card. So his his campaign staff are saying here off the record that yet they're, they're, they're almost, they won't say this publicly, but they're they accept that they may not win. They're very likely not to win Iowa and they may not even win New Hampshire. But the next few states to vote, South Carolina in particular and Nevada, they're very confident he will win there. Um, personally, I saw this. I went and covered uh, Pete Buttigieg about 10 days ago at a campaign in South Carolina, went to a campaign rally. He was very, very impressive. Uh, but most of the people in the crowd were white, the vast majority of about a thousand people, about six or seven 
uh, non-white people were there to to hear what he had to say. Um, and this was in a state where 60%, I think, of the Democratic vote in South Carolina is, is African-American. So I then went to an African-American church. Uh, he was trying, I mean, he's aware of this problem. He was trying to kind of engage with voters. And when I went there, straight away, you know, uh, parishioners there were saying to me, Pete who? And there was literally, uh, there were literally flyers of Joe Biden in the front hall as Pete Buttigieg came in. Absolutely everybody in that church knew who Joe Biden was, were big supporters. So it really kind of brought home to me that he really does have a challenge here. His name recognition is practically zero in those states. Now, the argument might be is that if he picks up momentum in Iowa, New Hampshire, gets a lot more national coverage, that by the time the voters go to the polls in uh, in South Carolina, that he could be, you know, he, he could be in a better position. Uh, also, on the African-American vote, particularly for Buttigieg, there is an issue there because uh, his own team has done research on this, that there are concerns that particularly among uh, older African-American voters that there would be a homophobic element and that they will never really support a, a gay a gay president. Now, he is uh, one of his trump cards, if you like, Buttigieg, is that he's high, he's very religious, he's very open about his Christianity. That will, you know, that will play well with um, a lot of uh, the Christian community, African-American community in South Carolina. But as I say, the sexuality issue could mm. be a problem for him among those constituents. Because evidence shows that black Democratic voters are more socially conservative on issues of that sort than uh, than white Democratic voters are. But I suppose the thing mm. is really, if you look at this and you say, there's Joe Biden, he's got a lock on the black base of the Democratic Party. He performs best at the with the white industrial working class who you need to win the presidential election. He should be a shoe-in if it were it not for the fact that he's in his late 70s and showing all those years. Yeah, and I think that's the case. You see, the, the problem at the moment is that I think the debate here is a very interesting debate. It's, you know, the issue of electability, as we we're saying at the beginning, who's the best person placed to beat Donald Trump? Some people argue that this is not the time for ideology. This is not the time you vote for a kind of um, an ideologically pure candidate, someone on the left, somebody who's bringing exciting big ideas to the to the election. That really, this is the time to vote for somebody safe, uh, somebody who's best positioned to uh, to take on Donald Trump. Now, a lot of the Democratic vote, particularly that kind of wave of enthusiasm that we saw in 2018, when a record number of women of more diverse candidates were elected to Congress, you know, there's a mismatch there that Joe Biden does not reflect that. But at the end of the day, I think that people are, are, are willing to put aside their their political ideologies, essentially, and give someone like Biden a chance, which they would never have done if Donald Trump was not in the White House. Uh, but they are willing to this time because this issue of electability is first and foremost. But as you said there earlier, that's a nebulous concept. What is electability? Will Joe Biden be able to really stand up to Donald Trump's attacks, for example, when he has to go head to head with him in a debate? It's absolutely the case that Joe Biden has been disappointing since he entered the race in April. He hasn't performed that well. He's, he's been he's slightly improved during during the debates, but he hasn't seen that sharp. He's been getting a lot of negative media coverage. So people are concerned that if they do choose Joe, Joe Biden, that could also backfire. And is it the case that Elizabeth Warren, who had a, a couple of good months for the last couple of months and who rose up in the polls and seemed to be challenging, you know, in, in a couple of those key primary states and seemed to be perhaps establishing a little bit of a lead at one point over Bernie Sanders, although that's less clear now. What part does gender play in the resistance to her? I was looking at the New York Times poll and one of the interesting things was they asked questions about likability and likability is seen as being a code for, for gender. Yeah, this is back to Hillary Clinton, 2016. Clinton 
obviously was the most qualified candidate in that uh, contest. She lost. And people time and time and again, I still hear it say they just didn't like her. Um, and is this a gendered concept? It very well may be. And Elizabeth Warren is facing some kind of the same uh, criticisms. And she does occupy a lot of the space uh, that Clinton did. Uh, like Clinton, she is by far the most prepared in terms of policy, in terms of planning, in terms of technical detail. I mean, there's a lot of differences too. I think she's much more to the left than Clinton and more in tune probably with the real concerns of ordinary working Americans. Um but yeah, I think she is battling that. She uh, she did very badly at the beginning of the race when she took made an ill-advised move really to take a DNA test to prove her ancestry because she'd been criticised um, for claiming she comes from a Native American stock. And, and Donald Trump, of course, chose a nickname for her, Pocahontas, which has kind of stuck. Um, but really, I don't think that did her any favours. Uh, but since then, uh, and at the, when that controversy was happening, there was a lot of pushback from her campaign saying, hang on, you're doing exactly what happened during 2016. You're holding Elizabeth Warren to different standards than you would to other candidates, to other male candidates, and this has to stop. And in a sense, I think she has shook that off to an extent. Um, and she is now very much, particularly um, after the summer, emerged really as the, um, as the strongest, the, the candidate to beat, as it were. And uh, I mean, I think there are questions around her stance maybe on foreign policy issues, you know, the idea of Warren as commander chief, again, a gendered issue. Hillary Clinton obviously had been secretary of state, so it held the most senior uh, foreign policy job in the administration. So she, you know, she uh, had already proven her credentials there. I think that could be a weakness uh, for Elizabeth Warren, whereas Biden, for example, has very strong credentials there because he was vice president and Buttigieg also has strong credentials there because he's a veteran and fought uh, in Afghanistan. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting concept. The issue of likability and of electability is highly nebulous, highly subjective. And I think a lot of um, a lot of Biden supporters are, are hiding behind that issue and have failed to kind of address what that really means. And as I say, he's not entirely on safe ground with these polls because it shows that his lead over Trump in these early polls is quite small. It's very, uh, it's very, so it's very tight. Yeah. And, um, and then looking at all those front runners and looking at the state of the field, I mean, there are some people, you hear these kind of rumblings within the Democratic Party of people saying, God, we need somebody else. And there's been all kinds of rumours and whispers going around, including, and I do find this extraordinary, the idea that Hillary Clinton might emerge. Well, yes, this uh, theory emerged last month when a very senior aide to Clinton went on, I think it was a Fox News channel actually, and said that she hadn't ruled it out. She hadn't ruled out a run in 2020. And then she was at a public engagement recently, I think to promote her new book with Chelsea Clinton and someone asked her would she run and she kind of said, oh, don't tempt me. So she didn't completely dispute the idea. Now, look, it's possible. I mean, there is, it is a possibility that a, um, a down-ballot candidate or somebody like Clinton or somebody outside the system may emerge. But the reality is, if they did not do so before the Iowa and New Hampshire caucuses, well, that would be very difficult for them to then succeed because they then don't get the delegates that you need that would be added up um, to, and then you eventually become the nominee. And look, there has been a real pushback really at the suggestion that Clinton could uh, could contest the election. A lot of Democratic senators, senators in 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 the in the Senate here at the moment, have come out on the record and said, no, I don't think it would be good. She's been through this before. It would be a mistake. Um, and these are people who really very much supported her uh, the last time. And of course, you can almost hear the Trump team, you know, clapping with glee at this prospect. Hillary Clinton is still very much a hate figure for Republicans here. Regularly, 
uh, Fox News run segments about her saying the real scandal is still Hillary Clinton and her emails, etc. So um, I think they would relish the opportunity for Donald Trump to go up against Hillary Clinton again. But look, no, I think you're right. I think it's very unlikely to happen. Now, you mentioned senators there and obviously a number of the contenders for the Democratic nomination, including uh, Warren and Sanders and Harris and a couple of other ones, in fact, are, are members of the Senate. And as impeachment proceedings gear up, on the Hill and become the, the public proceedings begin in the House of Representatives. The kind of timescale which is stretching out ahead of us is that uh, everybody seems to expect that uh, Congress will impeach uh, Trump over the Ukraine scandal and that will then go for consideration by the Senate in a trial, essentially is what it is, in the new year. Now, the, uh, the Iowa primaries on February the 3rd, Iowans like people to show up in Iowa for a couple of weeks, if not for a couple of years in advance before mm. they decide to vote for them. If there is a trial, all those senators will basically be locked up in Washington and not able to show up in Iowa. You're absolutely right. I think there is a concern. The The impeachment probe is currently with the House of Representatives and they have been trying to accelerate this. Uh, and they've been obviously stonewalled by the White House in terms of getting witnesses. But there is a pressure on them to move on this both in terms of moving the timetable forward, but also the sense that it may lose momentum, that the public are beginning to tune out of what's happening. It's the same stuff coming from the from the House every day on this and that they really need to move to the next stage, the public hearings and a full vote on the House to really engage the public on this. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, they need to move on this early. There had been talk that it could go to the Senate before Christmas. Um, but if it was to go after Christmas, that would be entirely that first month before the Iowa caucuses and all the other primaries that take place kind of every week before March the 3rd, which is Super Tuesday. Yes, it would be a huge issue uh, in terms of campaigning for people like Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar, if she's still in the contest, and of course Sanders and Warren. Um, but it would also mean that they are, they do, they may get quite a bit of airtime nationally if they were to, uh, you know, take a leading role in the impeachment trial in the Senate. For example, Kamala Harris, who's not been performing that well, she really got a lot of national attention last year when she questioned um, people in connection with the Russia investigation. She's a former prosecutor. She did very, very well um, interrogating the Attorney General, William Barr, for example, and that really upped her national profile. So there are advantages to that for some people. Um, but you're right, it would take a lot of senators away from uh, the ground, away from the battle, and it would obviously be an advantage for people like Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, who are not in the Senate. Uh, Buttigieg already is by far, has got the biggest ground staff up in Iowa. Biden has been very poor on that. So we could see him kind of tapping into that and trying to kind of, in the final run, increase his presence in Iowa. But I think generally for everyone, Democrats want to get this impeachment trial, you know, done and dusted. They feel it could be a distraction uh, and they do definitely do not want it uh, going any longer into 2020 and becoming that much of an election issue. And indeed, it's only, it's less than three months now to Iowa. It's less than a year to the presidential election. Uh, God knows, I'm certainly not going to ask you to call it, but do you think the way things are shaping up at the moment that it's likely to be a long, protracted painful primary process for the Democratic Party all the way up to near to the convention itself? I mean, I do. So far, it's been one of the, the biggest, um, ra you know, biggest candidatures since we've ever seen. I mean, there was 24 candidates uh, at its peak. It's now much more, it's much smaller. Um, but I think the key thing to watch will be Biden, um, how he performs in Iowa and New Hampshire. If he does not win either Iowa or New Hampshire, it does seem very difficult to see how he would sustain 
his campaign, even though he may well win in South Carolina. I think the media narrative, I think uh, the momentum would be with other another candidate, particularly if one other candidate won both. I mean, there's lots of examples in history where a Democrat won Iowa and didn't win New Hampshire. Obama, for example, when Iowa didn't, Clinton won New Hampshire. Um, but if one candidate was to win both of those, I think that would be a serious problem for Biden. And then what would happen then is where his votes would go. This is the problem. Even though there are now, we say, around four front runners, nobody is really a standout candidate, which means the, devo- the vote is pretty split. So as soon as one of those falls, um, their vote is obviously going to go elsewhere. Uh, and I think that's going to be the key thing to watch uh, as the, the Iowa and New Hampshire caucuses come by. But by, you know, by April, May, I think we should have a very good idea of who is going to be the candidate at that point. Uh, as I say, particularly if people have fallen by the wayside at that point. Suzanne, thanks very much for joining us today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Fiak and to Suzanne. Thanks to our producer Declan and to JJ on the desk. I did just want to mention one thing before we go. We are going to be recording an episode of Inside Politics as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival in a double bill with the What Am Politics podcast in the Workman's Club on the evening of Friday, November the 22nd. And we would love to see you there. Uh, I'm going to post all the details on my Twitter feed today. And so if you check that out, you'll get more information there. Uh, but until the next time, Thanks very much for listening.